Now, do you have a to-do list? Are you that sort of person that loves a list of, you know, ticking things off and a list of things to do? I, I am definitely that sort of person. In fact, I've got an app on my phone where I can categorize things and I can set the dates and colors and all sorts of things. And it makes this really satisfying little pop when you tick one off. It's like a very n nice little noise and it feels like you're, you're doing something good. Um, well, I guess we're all wired differently, aren't we? But uh, to some extent, um, I know for myself, it feels like a good day when I get lots of things done. Uh, and maybe you're the same as me in, in that regard. And in some sense, I think it's good, it's good that we do things, it's good to be productive in that way. Uh, so if that is you, I think you'll enjoy this passage because there's lots of imperatives, lots of instructions, lots of things to do uh, in, this, in this chapter. But I think I'm going to also challenge my own attitude when, in terms of just wanting to get things done a bit later on as well. So we are coming to the end of 1 Thessalonians today. It feels like we've flown through the letter, doesn't it? It's gone quite quickly, uh, I feel. Uh, and there's lots that we've seen. We've seen Paul's love for the church and just how encouraged he has been uh, as he's uh, encouraged by their faith as he writes. Uh, we've seen a real challenge in chapter 4 of, of how they're to live fruitfully and pure lives. That's what they're called to. Uh, last week, Jim really helpfully took us through uh, chapters 4 and 5, uh, talking about how they needed to understand uh, Jesus' return and what it meant for them and how it gave them great hope. And actually, that happens in every chapter. If you go back through, have a look and see how many times Paul brings up uh, Christ's return. It's there in every chapter of the book. It's a real key theme uh, and a really exciting one that we saw. Uh, and so we kind of come to this, this, this final section and it's quite bitty. It's quite sort of that there's lots in there, lots packed in. Um, so I was trying to work out, you know, how, how do we helpfully kind of frame what's going on? How do we understand what's happening here? Uh, and actually, if you go back to the end of the middle of chapter four, uh, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10, it says, talks about how, you, how they love each other. It says, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So he's, he urges them, keep loving each other, grow in love, do it more and more. And I think really what's happening in this final section is like he's bringing together all these different instructions, all these things they should be doing to, to grow in love for each other. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look through the passage. A, we're going to look at quite a few points. They are brief, so don't worry too much. Uh, but I've kind of summarised it under this main heading, as you see at the top there, that we need to keep growing in love for each other more and more. We keep growing in love for each other more and more. First, the first way we do that, uh, as Paul says, is by acknowledging your church leaders, verses 12 and 13. So you look at verse 12 with me again. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. We don't know all the details, but very clearly there are people in the church uh, serving as leaders in some capacity, there to, to care for the church family, there to lead, uh, admonish is that kind of instructing them in the right way to go, warning them, teaching them the best way to, to, to do things. Uh, so they're, they're told, acknowledge those who are, who are working hard among you. Acknowledge them. Now, when I acknowledge someone on the street, I'm just sort of like a little nod of the head or something, isn't it? You sort of like, you just sort of nod your head at someone. It's a very slight thing. Obviously, it's much bigger here. You look at verse 13, see what it says, what it means to acknowledge them. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Hold them in high regard in love. There's respect there. There's honor. There, you show favor to them. But that's not 
trying to sort of lift them up and make them put them on a pedestal as if they're some higher status than everyone else. It's, it's high regard because of their work. Do you see that? Because of what they're doing. Leaders of churches should be humble and they should be servants rather than kind of overbearing rulers. They're seeking to, to show their work in how they love people, how they care. And hopefully it's that characteristic that, that people pick up on and then show that respect and, and do that. It's interesting that he says live in peace, isn't it? I wonder if there was some conflict there between the leadership, between some people in the church. We don't know, but it's possible, isn't it, that there was some sort of tension there. So they're called to, to acknowledge their leaders. Now that is a weird application to tell you to do as one of the leaders of the church. It's probably a bit easier for Paul to do it because he was writing from afar and telling the church to do that. But hopefully you see it. It's a good way for us to grow in love together as a church is by holding those of us who lead in high regard. Not because, like I say, not because we're higher than you in any way, but because hopefully you see that we want to serve you, we want to love you and care for you and, uh, and do what we can to, to unite us as a church family. Uh, my pastor growing up, I just remember, really had that sort of character. You know, he wasn't afraid to get his hands there to go and empty the bins if they needed emptying at church or be there for people in the middle of the night if they were in trouble and those sort of things. And that was, you know, he was held in high regard by the church uh, because he clearly really cared. So that was a, that's something you know, I want to aspire to as I grow into this role and, uh, and seek to do those things. It's clearly a big challenge here for those of us who are elders to be that humble servants of the Lord. And recently, there have been some uh, pretty high-profile cases of spiritual abuse happening in churches uh, and there's been a lot of hurt and a lot of damage both to, to people who have suffered in that way and also then to the gospel and it's really tragic and so those of us who are elders we need to be really careful uh, and friends and church family if you if you think you're seeing things happening like that then challenge us on it if there's something more serious there is a safeguarding procedure we have policies in place to keep each other safe we don't want to be that kind of spiritual we don't have any sort of sense of spiritual abuse here uh, so there, there's safeguarding things you can find out about. Uh, maybe John Whittle would be a good person to speak to if, if you have concerns about elders don't want to come to us. But hopefully you can see that we're, our heart is for the church. We want to, to encourage the church and lead the church uh, to, to be growing in their faith and, uh, and evangelism. So hopefully we can live at peace with each other uh, and we can encourage each other and we can uh, honour each other and seek to, to grow in the gospel. And that's really what well, the next point is. Paul goes on to say that we need to do what is good for each other. To do what is good for each other. Look at verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, that's a really helpful verse, but really challenging, isn't it? I think if we're honest, when we get hurt, when we get hurt by others, it's really easy to try and either to hold a grudge or try and get your own back in some way. And this is a verse of grace. It's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. Forgive them. Strive. Push. Do all you can to do good for others uh, in the church family. Do what is good for each other. Not just the church family. See, it's each other and everyone else. It goes wider than that. It, it's, it's those around us, our friends, our neighbours. Now, in the church, that doesn't mean it's... That, that, sorry, that means sometimes it can be things like warning someone, challenging them. You see that in verse 14. Paul says, warn the idle and the disruptive. They need to be challenged on their behaviour. They need to, to change and grow in love. And they need to, to hear that. Sometimes it might mean encouraging someone or, or helping them if they're struggling in their faith, if they're discouraged. He sums it up, doesn't he? Be patient with everyone. 
That is a really good memory verse, I think, isn't it? A good, good thing to have in our heads. Be patient with everyone. When someone get, gets our back up or, or does something we don't like, breathe, be patient with everyone. Just like Christ is patient with us. So there you go. That, there's a challenge for us, isn't there? Maybe that's worth reading on again later and reflecting on. Maybe there's someone you need to speak to and actually maybe think, I might need to challenge one of my brothers or sisters because I can see that they're living in, in a way that, that is not honouring to God. Or maybe they're struggling in their faith and you think, oh, I'd love to go and encourage them and share something that's going to warm their heart and remind them of God's love. So that's a good thing for us to do, isn't it? To, to follow God's leading and to, to keep striving to do what is good for other people. And that means laying down our lives, uh, living sacrificially for the sake of other people, doing it you know, not for our own sake, but for others. We then move on again uh, to Paul's third point, which is this. Live prayerful lives of joy and thanks. Verses 16 through to 18. And if you thought the last, the last verse I said was a good memory verse, these ones are brilliant. If you struggle to learn the Bible, learn verse 16 or verse 17. There are only two words in each verse. So rejoice always. You remember that? Rejoice always and pray continually. If you want some good verses to learn, you think, I'm rubbish at learning the Bible. There's two that are really good to, to have in mind. Rejoice always. And then it goes on, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, when I read verses like this, it's a struggle sometimes, I think, because it sounds brilliant, doesn't it? It sounds really, really good. But does it really work like that? When you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're overwhelmed with life, or if you're suffering and struggling in some way, how do you connect this? How do we rejoice always and give thanks even in the midst of real difficulty? Well, maybe the church was asking that because if you look, if you, I don't know if you remember earlier in the, the book, but we saw that the church was suffering for the gospel. They didn't have it easy. They were being persecuted. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. If you go back to that, it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So he's not, you know, he's not telling them to rejoice when they've got it easy. He's, he knows they've got it really hard. And still he says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks. And actually there's a hint in verse 6 there, because it talks about how that happens with the Holy Spirit's help. The joy given by the Holy Spirit. So it's possible for us to rejoice and give thanks, even in real hardship. Note that it says in verse 18, do it in all circumstances, not because of all circumstances. I think there's a difference there, isn't there? That it's, we're not just rejoicing because we've got it really hard and we're really suffering. But actually we do it in that moment because we know something better. We've got a greater vision in our head because we know the Lord Jesus. We know what he's done for us. So I hope that's helpful. We want to, to live joyful lives. And let me, let me be clear that that doesn't mean we always have to put on a happy face at church. I don't know if you feel that pressure. I know I feel that pressure. If you've, even if you've had a tough week, you've got to get that smile going and, and say you're doing okay, even if you're really struggling, because it just feels like what you've got to do, doesn't it? But that's not, that's not what this is saying, that, that there's a deeper, you can have a deeper joy, even in the midst of real trial, because you lift your eyes from the, the, the kind of pain of what you're going through, and you lift your eyes to Jesus, and you remember what he's done for you. And that's what kind of gives you the hope and the, the joy, even in that moment. It can be... You can be floods of tears, but there can be joy in your hearts. And it says that's God's will for you in Christ. That's what God wants for us, to be rejoicing, to be thankful. 
And it's wonderful to remember, isn't it, that, that because of God's will for us, because of what he has done, knowing who we are in Christ, that, that's a real security there, that we are saved by, from our sin by a sacrifice. It, it, he said, it is finished. We receive his perfection in place of our imperfection. We are given new life, new hope for the future, for whatever we face, whatever comes our way. Jesus is coming back. We saw that last week. It's good news to hold on to when we're struggling. So I hope that encourages you to rejoice always, to pray continually, to live a life of thankfulness because you're loved by the Lord Jesus. And actually, if you're not a believer here today, maybe you've just come along and and you're listening to what I'm saying, do you have have an answer for what happens when times are hard? I think actually suffering is a big reason why people don't believe in God, why they choose to reject him. But actually, there's no real hope when you reject God, even when you suffer either. If you come to God, there is hope beyond the suffering, beyond whatever we go through, any difficulty, there is hope beyond it because of the Lord Jesus. So maybe that gives you food for thought and something to to chew on. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that. But remember what I said earlier, as believers, the joy we experience, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And that leads us on to the next point, where we see in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. That's what it says in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I'm going to slow down a little bit here because it feels like a lot of these other sections today, they maybe feel quite familiar, quite, they're, they're obvious things, they're straightforward things for us to be doing. I don't know about you, but this feels less familiar, less kind of obvious, less easy to understand. We've got these verses that suggest that uh, the church was rejecting prophecies, was not taking them seriously. And Paul's really concerned that the power of the Spirit would, would, would not be extinguished among them. <clears throat> But it's a hard, it's a, they're a hard couple of verses, aren't they? Maybe hard for us to understand what they mean today. I'll be honest, this is, this is an area where I want to grow my own understanding. It wasn't something that was hugely explored in, when I was at Bible college. It wasn't hugely explored in other churches I've been a part of. So I've been reading, I've been praying this week, I've been sort of chewing over these things. I'm just going to share kind of where I've got to in my understanding. Uh, I think we, we've probably got a range of views uh, in this area especially thinking about prophecy so remember we need to be patient with everyone don't we patient and gracious uh, as we think about this so from my reading i think it might help just to try and summarize how people understand prophecy today uh, under three very broad categories there's lots more detail you could go into uh, and so here we go the first one some would see it as the inspired word of god the inspired word of god so think about the prophets in the old testament they were, they were speaking the authoritative words from God. They were the messengers for the people. It was understood to be kind of, you know, God's words directly uh, and had authority. And there are some today that might then track that forward uh, and see that prophets today basically playing a, a similar role uh, and speaking God's words with that kind of real authority. And to be honest, I think actually this one is quite dangerous. It's quite a dangerous uh, idea. Because the Bible does not teach that the church will prophesy in the same way as those prophets in the Old Testament. Or even you know, have that same sort of spiritual authority as the apostles in the New Testament. And if you think about it, if, if people even today were prophesying the, the, the authoritative words of God, you'd have people going around every church. Oh, what? I need to write stuff down. We need to record all these words from God. These, the, these are, you know, really, we, we need to treat these in the same way as maybe the Bible. But that didn't happen in the New Testament. We don't see that happening in the early church. We don't, 
I don't think we should be doing that today. And you see that. Paul says, you, don't, you need to test what you hear. It means not everything is going to be accepted like with that real authority. So let me encourage you to be careful and be really wary if you come across someone saying, you know, I'm speaking the direct kind of uh, words from God, especially if it's maybe something new, something that's not biblical. It can lead to things like cults and, uh, and false teaching, and it can lead to spiritual abuse because it could basically be the, 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 the person's hearts, they just want to do something, and they say, look, God, God definitely wants us to do this. You know, this is, this, is a, uh, this is him speaking, and we must do this. And that can, be, that can be abusive because actually we need to test these things. We need to not accept it as a, as a definite in the same way as the prophets in the Old Testament. So that's, that's one I think could be dangerous. I think the second one that's maybe more helpful, uh, revelate, prophecy is understood to be revelations and messages from God that edify the church. Now in one sense that probably sounds quite similar, doesn't it, to, to, to the first, but there's, there's a big difference so it, it, it means to have something revealed to you from God, maybe a message for an individual in the church or for the church as a whole, but it's not on that same you know, authoritative level. It's not treated as you know, God's, God's word in the same way as, say, Scripture or Old Testament prophecy. So why, is it, why is it a good thing? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about prophecy there. Uh, no, I clearly missed that one, sorry. Um, uh, I'll read it, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 4. It says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The one who prophesies edifies the church. So there's a focus on, if, the, if these messages are shared, it's there to build up and encourage and strengthen the church. It's passing on something that maybe God lays on your heart, and you've got a desire, and you say, I think God has this message for you. Uh, but it's not something that is infallible. I think that's the clear, that's the big difference I want to, to make. As this passage points out, they must be tested. We'll talk about that. Uh, so that, that's another view that people take. And then one other one that, that again, is, is I think a helpful one and, and one that's more general, which is basically to say that actually prophecy in the sense of the biblical sense has now been replaced by preaching. This was another key view that I found in my reading was that kind of prophecy was really abundant at the time of the New Testament because the Bible was not put together yet. You know, it was still being written. It was still kind of coming together and being formed uh, as God's word to his people. And so that's why it was really important for the Holy Spirit to be there speaking through, encouraging, guiding, and strengthening and correcting. Uh, and some people say, well, actually, now that the Bible is complete, prophecy maybe with that, that, that kind of focus has now been replaced by preaching where God's word is taught, God's word's opened up and, and encouraged in a similar way. That's not to say that people may not get impressions and, and messages from God, but I guess they would choose not to call it prophecy in the same way. Now, I'm sure, uh, as a church body, we probably lean one way or another, or maybe different ways on this issue. I'm not in a place to give a definitive opinion here. I'm still learning about this area myself. And actually, it's far more complicated than these basic introduction that I've given. And I'm really conscious that we are a church plant from different churches and different church backgrounds. And maybe you've been in churches where it's been really good and really encouraging. And maybe you've been in churches where it's been not helpful and it's not been very, very, very maybe done well or, or, or something like that. So I think, we, again, we need to come back to the, being patient with each other, don't we? And gracious. Uh, and actually note that actually the principles, whichever position we take, are really helpful. 
we're told not to quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. It's a powerful image, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is often compared to fire in Scripture. He appears as tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. So it makes sense of Paul's language. He says, do not put him out, don't extinguish him. He's concerned that this rejection of prophecy was limiting the Spirit's work in the church. And I think that's really helpful for us today. Whatever position we take, I wonder if sometimes there's a reaction against really extreme examples of of charismatic gifts being used that that it's almost easy to swing too far the other way. And Paul's point is that be open to God working amongst you. Be open to the Holy Spirit at work. Seek to to use the gifts that he, he gives us. Seek to grow in them. We mustn't quench the Spirit. And we must test. Test them all. Um, that is Paul's crucial point. He says, whatever messages you hear, don't just accept them or reject them without considering them, without testing them to see if they're truly from God. They were to hold on to the good. Do you see that? But they were also to reject anything that was not good. He says, all, every kind of evil. So that's, that's telling, isn't it? That, that there is a testing process to make sure that actually this is good and, and something that can edify the church. I'm definitely cautious about this because I've, I've been in those situations where I've seen it done badly, to be honest with you. Uh, at my Christian Union, uh, a speaker came once and led this time of prophecy. And basically we were told to sit there and kind of empty our minds and just say whatever came in. And it was just a bit strange because people were just saying these weird things. That they, they weren't anything bad, but it was just all a bit generic and not very, it didn't seem very helpful. And there wasn't any testing. There was no sort of, you know, you know testing what, what's going on. And it felt really weird to kind of say, empty your mind, because it felt like, well, that sounds dangerous to me. Surely we need to be focusing on the Lord and, and seeking him to speak to us and, and seeking that rather than just emptying our minds. But anyway, that, that was one example where maybe it hasn't done well. And that's why I think it, it's called me to be cautious and to seek to, to be wise. Um, let me encourage you, though, if you think maybe you, you, you do have a, a gift in this area and and you have messages that you think would benefit the church, then I encourage you to maybe come and speak to an elder uh, and uh, allow them to allow these messages to be tested. Uh, there's no time to go into detail about what that testing is, but there's lots of things like, is it according to scripture? That's a key one. Does it, does it align with what we know uh, of God? Is it something that honours Christ and the gospel? Does it align with the person's character as they share the message? Does it build up the church? Those sort of things, we, it's important to test it together. So I believe that as elders, we have a responsibility to, to hear and pray and consider those things. Uh, and then, if it's appropriate, to then bring it to the church family for, uh, to, to test that further. Um, so yeah, let me encourage you to, 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 to think about that and uh, talk to me if, you, if you'd like to. Remember, the focus is to strengthen the church. And I think this feels like a sort of starting point almost, that we need to grow in our understanding of this area. Uh, in a way that's going to encourage us and edify us. So it's, it's almost the start of a conversation rather than the last word on the matter. We need to not quench the spirits. One other quick one. Uh, right at the end, we see in verses 25 and 27, we, we need to pray for others and welcome each other. Pray for others and welcome each other. Verse 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this, read, this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. It's so easy just to kind of skip over the verses at the end of a letter, isn't it? Just the kind of the last little bits and just, you've covered all the, the main stuff, won't worry about that. But it's just a couple of good things to note, isn't it? This request from Paul to pray for him, 
Pray for him and his team where they are. He sees this church as a proper gospel partner. They're not just a church in need of his help, in need of guidance. He wants them to pray for him too. He needs, he needs there's this mutual respect, this partnership in the gospel there. He wants the letter read to everyone. He wants everyone to benefit from the encouragements and the corrections and the challenges. And he instructs them all to greet everyone with God, uh, greet all people, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. That was a, a natural way to greet other people in that culture, especially a, fa- a sort of family thing. They were now a church family, brothers and sisters. And maybe it was a bigger deal to them than, than maybe we thought, we think it, it might be. Think about the, the sort of different backgrounds that the people in the early church had. Things like a Jew and a Gentile. They would not have done that before. Uh, rich and poor, slave and free, to, to greet everyone in the same way with that, that, that sort of unity of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Like, greet everyone, welcome everyone. I think that's really helpful and challenging for us, isn't it? We pray for other believers. We have a, a genuine concern for them. And we need to ask ourselves, are we ready to, to extend that loving welcome to anyone that's drawn into church? It's really easy, isn't it, to gravitate towards other people like ourselves. I know that I'm very guilty of doing that. Forgive me if I've done that since arriving. We need God's help to, to, to just have open hearts and welcome people with gospel love. I'm not saying we have to kiss each other because, again, it, maybe that makes you very uncomfortable. Uh, but there's this welcoming attitude in our hearts, isn't it? That's, that's what we need to, to hear from this. There's loads in this chapter. Lots to do, isn't there? Lots to put on your to-do list for, for the coming weeks. So before I finish, just quickly, I think we need to consider the attitude with which we are to do them. We need to think about why we do them and how we do them. So here's uh, the point at the top there. Do these things, trusting the grace and power of God. Do these things, trusting the grace and power of God. Firstly, we do that because you see in this chapter that he will sanctify us. He prays at the end, verse 23. It's a lovely prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. It kind of just encapsulates Paul's desire for the church, doesn't it, in this letter. That God would sanctify them, that that he would make them holy, they would grow to be more like Christ. That they would be living blameless lives. So that their whole self, you see, that whole self would be ready for Christ's return. It sounds, maybe it sounds impossible because we know our hearts and we know what we're like. But that's why it's so good to see verse 24, isn't it? Because we know that we're sinful, we know we're unfaithful. We look at verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. There's no doubt here. He, he does that in us. He helps us. He helps us to grow. So we should echo this prayer for ourselves, shouldn't we? That God would be at work amongst us, unifying us, correcting us, encouraging us to live for God in all we do. Remember, I started by talking about my to-do list, and it feels good to get, get lots done and tick lots of things off, and maybe that's what you're feeling as we come to the end of this sermon, think, oh, I've got so many, lots of things to do, lots to try harder at. And that's where we think we need to challenge that attitude of almost having an identity in what we get done, because that's not how the gospel works. The trouble is, we will get things wrong. We will not always love each other like we're called to. We will upset each other. We will hurt each other sometimes. We are sinful. We can't do it all, however hard we try. And our motives will always be mixed to some extent. There's pride mixed in and and things like that. 
That's why we need to finish with the same words as Paul. Verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Friends, we can only do any of these things in response to his grace. That is the heart of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is the fact that we cannot do it. We cannot do these things on our own. We cannot save ourselves. Anything we do, it's not enough to, uh, to earn our place with God. It's not about what we do, ultimately. We have to remember that. We have to come to that before we do anything in response to this passage, before we add these things to our to-do list. We remember, no, we do, this is not about us doing it. It's about coming to Christ, that we are hopeless sinners saved by his grace. And remember, he died to save sinners like us. That is our hope. Not what we do. That's the thing we cling to. And then we, we live out these things. We do these things in response to that. Always in response. Always in gratitude. So let me encourage you not to leave today with a sort of big to-do list and a heavy heart because you think this is impossible. No, come to Christ. Know his grace. Know his favour. Know his forgiveness. And then live out your life in response to that. Seek to grow in love for each other and everyone else. That's how we please God. We trust his grace. We grow in holiness. We trust the spirit would work in us. But we don't take the credit. We don't make ourselves feel good because we've done it in our own strength. It's, it's all from him. So that's what we do, isn't it? We don't do it ourselves. Why don't I pray that God would be at work in us, that we wouldn't be proud, that we trust him to help us serve him. Let's pray. Loving Father, we, we thank you so much for your kindness and your grace. Thank you that you are faithful that you promised to sanctify us and make us holy and make us like you. Would you help us to grow in love for each other, in love for you, in love for everyone else? Would you strengthen us? Would you unite us as we seek to do these things together, to build each other up, to encourage each other? But would you always remind us that we, we must come to the cross where we are shown grace and mercy, where we are loved, we are adopted as your children, and that, that's the thing that, that binds us, is being drawn into your family. So thank you for that. And please help us live our lives in response, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.